Good morning, everyone. My name is Ken Kirk, and I'm honored and delighted to be here. Public speaking is actually part of my job. Uh, I'm a teacher by trade, but for some reason, uh, whenever I get in front of people and my task is to speak from the heart, you know, what's going on inside me, um, I get a little nervous. And then I get kind of taken back by that because I'm like, gosh, I should be really good at this. Um, you know, that kind of nervous feeling you get when you're, you know, you dream that you're naked and total anxiety dream. Um, because I can't hide behind my lesson plan. Um, so as a calming technique for myself, I'm going to begin with a joke. What did the hungry Buddhist say to the hot dog vendor? There you go. I was hoping Mel would be here to hear that. So, for most of my life, I felt disconnected from everything. I was not raised in a spiritual or religious home, although for a brief time, thankfully, in my childhood, my parents brought my sister and me to Sunday school at St. Matthew's Methodist Church in Fairfax, bribing us with promises of Slurpees after class. To this day, when I think of organized faith, I can't help but think of Slurpees. But I also think of watching all those families coming together on Sundays, bound by some common purpose I was too young to understand. I felt the benevolent energy, though, and was drawn to it, even if I didn't comprehend the words of the message or the point of the parables. Although the period of religious exposure was short-lived, and I would not step into a church earnestly for almost 30 years, I remember that feeling, and again, my lack of vocabulary to articulate it. I'll share with you the period between then and now. As I mentioned, I felt detached from everything. I don't know exactly why I felt that way or where it came from. All I know is that it worsened with time. In every social situation, I felt different, but not special, terminally unique, awkward. I wanted connections with friends and family, but feared it. I desired a spiritual understanding, but disliked the idea of being beholden to anything and worried that I might find in the end that I was unworthy of belonging. So I began to nurture my disconnection, and I built a wall, like many of us do at some point, for whatever reason. And it was, as you can imagine or attest to, an extremely lonely place. And it didn't take long before I started to see myself as a victim. Why couldn't I be like other people who seemed to bond with others effortlessly? Why did I have to feel all this fear? No answer came, so I stayed the course. I sat safely behind my wall and critiqued the world and my fellows harshly to remind myself why I wanted no part of life. I especially loved politics, not because I was interested in how they affected people's lives or could advance society, but simply because they were the easiest way to start an argument and separate myself from other people, with whom I always had much more in common than I was willing to admit. It's no wonder I wanted to be a rhetoric and composition teacher. Life was an endless debate, a spiritually bereft battle. Around this time, I began to rely on drugs and alcohol to offset the unnatural and lonely way I was living. Substances didn't solve my disconnection problem or improve my life in any way. Quite the opposite, but they fixed it so I didn't feel the fear the self-pity or isolation quite so sharply. This was such a relief that for a while I believed I'd found something spiritual. After all, the word addict comes from the Latin addico, which means to devote oneself to the gods. For a while, I didn't feel as angry, which strangely allowed me to be productive and behave as though I was connected to the world from behind my wall. The blessings began to materialize. I got high marks and degrees. I began a career as a writer and teacher. I married a beautiful and tender-hearted woman whom I'd known since adolescence. I had my health and the capacity to make a difference. And most importantly, and unfortunately, I could have my kicks. And that was the crux of living this way, 
It was still all about me and my entitlement and my fear. I hadn't grown or found real connection with the world, let alone the people close to me. I was still isolated and of no real use to anyone. And in my lifelong quest to embrace self-will and autonomy, I became utterly enslaved by substances. When this happens to a person as it did to me, you are sick. Everything is upside down, rife with paradox and double binds. It saddens me even now to admit that the blessings in my life felt like burdens. I started letting my loved ones down, and there were consequences and losses. I don't think it's necessary to speak in greater detail on this point. Suffice it to say that the substances, which so often have provided a reprieve, were now simply offering themselves as relief from the problems they were causing. I eventually came to an impasse, a fork in the road. I could continue climbing downward, eking out a mediocre, unnatural, and self-centered existence until the bitter end, or I had the option of reacquainting myself with that force I had felt as a child at St. Matthew's, but couldn't describe. At that point, it didn't really feel like a choice at all, and I picked the latter, even though seeking a spiritual life was scary and it was unfamiliar and utterly humbling because I had to admit that my way hadn't worked. In recovery, we call this the gift of desperation. I had to be willing to make a new and literal journey. So I packed a suitcase and I went to treatment where I spent four months learning how to live naturally. I connected with others who were like me and many who were on the surface were not very much like me at all. I learned to identify with them, not compare my story to theirs. And over time, I began to trust. I shared things about myself, particularly my shortcomings, my anger, my shame. These men and women came to know all about me and they loved me anyway. For the first time in my life, I suddenly felt like I could reciprocate. I felt empathy for others instead of pity for myself. I felt responsible. More than that, I felt and continued to feel grateful. This was a miracle, which I define simply as something I cannot explain. I could not explain the benevolence working inside my wife when she let me go away for a third of a year and agreed to hold down the fort with our two dogs and four cats, which is a chore. I couldn't wrap my head around my employer's kindness when she was willing to let me keep my job, even though it required a lot of paperwork and coordination to cover my classes for such a length of time. And I still can't say why a group of sick, self-centered people can teach each other what it means to connect and trust. But there you go. All I know is that their compassion, empathy, and love, which I believe are spiritual gifts, have changed me. I accept them humbly and desire in whatever way, big or small, to do my part to help sustain these forces. All I have to do is remain willing. Thankfully, the Sunday services I attended in treatment were necessarily inclusive, with prayers, songs, and sermons coming from Jewish, Muslim, Judeo-Christian perspectives, and many others, which aligned perfectly with my new desire to connect and merge and not compare the differences. This has led me to the UU faith, which has as many forms and definitions as there are congregates. Before, I would completely miss the point fixating on those differences, looking for evidence of incoherence and hypocrisy, overlooking the forest for the firs. This was once my tactic for disconnection and safety. But in embracing recovery and the Unitarian, Universalist, Unitarian Universalism and trying to practice these tenets in my life, I've come to understand that this faith is simply rooted in our natural desire to connect with others, to be of service, and give and receive unqualified love. This is possible only when we are open and willing, which recovery has taught me, unconcerned with the details of origin stories and ceremony, but only the larger message within them. Unfortunately for me, as an English teacher, 
The message has nothing to do with words, and it has nothing to do with dogma. It has everything to do with experience and action, which are, I have found, the ways in which God speaks to and through us. I love that you use live a faith that is difficult to describe, elusive to define, yet easy to understand. We don't seem concerned with articulating the word of God so much as seeking the experiences of joy, truth, and love, which bring us closer. At our best, we are bound by a willingness to let go of our fears and doubts and offer our spirits as vehicles for this, these cohesive forces of compassion, gratitude, and empathy as we live our faith through action and through experience. And that's why I'm here. Thank you.